Today, we're talking to Twyla Dang, the CEO, founder of Matriarch Digital Media. Thank you. And thank you for saying it correctly. I've been having to correct folks a lot lately. What's the incorrect way to say it? They just keep calling it Matriarch Media. Oh. It's like, nope, that ain't it. I know you're the founder and CEO. I know that. Yes. But you're also the owner, I'm guessing. Yes. What does that entail? Like, what is Matriarch Digital Media? And what does that encompass? So Matriarch Digital Media is a women-centered, women-focused media company. I am the founder and CEO. Um, Our first product on market is a podcast network, and we currently have eight shows within that network um, with always an an additional string of network shows coming out of the network. We also run a production house as a part of Matriarch um, so that we do custom audio work for paying clients. And we now have Women in Podcasting, which started out as a networking group um, to help get more women into the podcasting industry, but it's actually now um, expanding into a full service virtual learning platform so that we can not only bring women into the industry, but we can give them the tools they need to succeed in the industry. Sure. Okay. And what are the, um, yeah, I heard you have eight shows and I did see that. Um, mm-hmm. What are those eight shows? And, and what are they all about? Can you- now you're going to put me on the spot. We'll see if I can remember all the names of all my shows. No cast. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew of Dr. Eric Hegard. I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, Hegard. Yep. So that was our flagship show, the the Gynocast. We've had the show under our umbrella for four years, um, but it actually started out as a radio property under Hubbard Broadcasting. So he actually brought the show over when he came over to us. Um, so it's a show that he hosts with me. Um, and it's about it's the primary goal is to talk about women's emotional, physical health and well-being. Um, we also have a spinoff show from that show called The Endocast, which is solely focused on endometriosis. Um, Eric uh, hosts that show as well, Dr. Hegard, because uh, he has dedicated the majority of his 25-year-plus um, gynecological medical career to helping women with um, pelvic pain and endometriosis. Um, and the, his co-host is a woman here in the Twin Cities who is uh, currently the president of Endo Warriors. Her name is Britt Tellman Pangirl. Um, and so she is the current president of Minnesota Endo Warriors, has lived with, lives with endometriosis and brings a really unique perspective to the discussion because she can actually talk about, you know, what it's like to deal with it day to day. We have a show called A Mess in the Kitchen, uh, which is hosted by Molly Mogren Cat and Dusty Kugler. Um, so both of these women, um, one works as uh, Andrew Zimmern's right hand at Foodworks, his production company. And the other one actually hosted a show with Andrew Zimmern for years called Go Fork Yourself. So the two of them are basically talking about how to demystify um, approaching cooking. And they, they basically just say, you know, we want you to go try stuff, get comfortable in the kitchen. And if you mess it up, go order a frozen pizza. It's not that big of a deal. So um, we've that's one of our newer shows that just came out the gate. Uh, we have a show called So Fail, So Good that's hosted by Laura Ruse. It is a show where we talk about women, we talk about women and failure. We don't talk about failure enough. We don't talk about failure as a concept. Um, and Laura came to us with an amazing idea to help have conversations that demystify failure for people um, and to get you more comfortable with failure. Because what women tend to do is assign failure to themselves. They call themselves the failure if, say, a business or something they attempt to do fails. And men do a 
a better job of assigning the failure away from them. Like the thing they tried failed, they are not a failure. But women tend to really ascribe that as a personal trait when they something goes wrong. So we want to start demystifying that conversation and changing the language and the thought processes around failure. Uh, we have a show called Me Before Mom. Uh, Bert Anderson hosts it. It's based on her book and her blog. Uh, really just conversations with moms about staying connected to the person you were before you had children because one day your children leave and you have to be able to continue to have a relationship with yourself in that process. Uh, we have a show called Molly May um, and Molly May is the host. It's a body positive podcast. Uh, and Molly talks about her experiences um, learning to love her body um, and learning to navigate a world that doesn't always accept bigger bodies. And she's really on a mission to make everybody get on board and, um, you know, and enjoy their life because you only get one of them. So she's fantastic. She's one of my favorite people. Uh, we have Twyla and Natalie, which was another, the other flagship matriarch show. Uh, myself and my old radio host from Hubbard Broadcasting, essentially talking about the trials and tribulations of being grown women and who we are and what we do. And we just added a show to our flagship lineup that will be launching most likely in September. It's called Blunt Cuts. Um, CJ Fortier uh, is an advertising exec, and she has been running this independent podcast that really says to women, we want to have, let's let's get blunt and have real conversations about the things that happen in our lives. And she wants to create a safe space to do that. So she has a combination of interviews and monologues talking about issues um, that all women face, that all women go through day to day, but wanting to give an opportunity to just have a real, like, let's not have a polished, polite conversation about it. Let's just talk about real things. So those are the eight um, that for sure are like, that exist. Um, we actually have uh, one more that is completely finished, hasn't been released to the public yet. We finished it a while ago. I need to get it out. Um, and we have six more in the pipeline and an additional eight more in incubation stage right now. Sure. So how many of your your already out shows are like a series that ended or versus like an ongoing series? Are they all ongoing? or All of these are ongoing. We've only had one show we did that um, that ended. Uh, we had a show called Beyond Me Too. It was a mini series that we launched three weeks after um, the Me Too story broke originally. We brought in um, a therapist, um, an advocate, you know, um, a sexual assaults advocate and counselor and myself. And we had a conversation around what you could do and how you could take the emotions that we were all feeling at the time and didn't have a place to sort of contextualize or put them and how to take those emotions and turn them into action. Uh, so it was a three-part series. We ran it. We kept it up on air for about eight months. But uh, as the story evolved and as the need for this type of information started to wane because we were seeing it sort of pop up in other places, we just decided that uh, the moment that we needed was, you know, we, we had the moment we needed. We pulled the content. We still own it, but we still, but it's, you know, it's fairly dated because it was really of a moment of a time and a place. What, um, what got you into podcasting in the first place? Like, where does that, where does that start for you to, much less for you to start an entire media company that houses like a bunch of shows, but like what started that process of you getting into podcasting and like being a creative? Were you a creative first? No, <laughs> I was a happy and completely happy stay-at-home mom. Um, I had been out of the workforce for about, at that point, about 12 years. Um, was just starting to figure out like, oh, I might have to go back to work at some point. Um, and to be perfectly honest, this entire media trajectory, 
I, I cannot say that I actively said, oh, I always had a vision. I always had a dream. I didn't. Um, I was at a luncheon with some friends. I made a joke at this luncheon. It was, it was all my mom friends, most of whom were going back to work. It was like our annual first day of school like brunch when the kids go to school the moms go have a you know lazy lunch and drink mimosas and uh, at the end of lunch I had made a joke because most of them were going back to work or were already or you know working or continued to work and I had had the bonus kid so I I was still at home for a couple more years and I said hey I'm so glad I know all these talented women because the only thing I'm really good at is talking nobody pays me to do that and we'd laughed and you know we just kind of put it off and a couple of weeks later, um, a, a very good friend of mine, Alexis Thompson, who works for Hubbard Broadcasting, she is the host of the Jason Alexis show. She called me because she was at the lunch. And she said, you know, you made that joke at lunch. Uh, and I immediately remembered the joke. And then I immediately thought I might have offended her because I made a joke about talking. And that's what she does for a living. Um, and she said, no, 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 you didn't offend me at all. Um, I actually think you'd be really good at talking for a living. And I think you should meet my boss. She introduced me to the program director at my talk 1071. And with seven, within seven months, I was on the air. And I hadn't gone to school for this. And I hadn't done, I had done no training for this. I knew nothing about this except, you know, my mother's advice, which was, if you show up and it's just a warehouse, don't go in there, baby. It might not be real. <laughs> so I showed up and... You know, I was very bad when I started because everybody's bad when they start. And over time, I started to get a little bit better, got paired up with a producer who was, um, you know, really willing to teach me and answer questions that I had because I really, I don't like being bad at things. So I was really willing to do the work to get better at it. Um, and then I found out pretty quickly I had good instincts for it. I understood how to manage a clock, how to manage a conversation, how to, how to be having a conversation with a person and manage, say, an incoming phone call and synthesize that and incorporate it into the conversation and understand where the conversation needs to go so we can finish it in, you know, three minutes and make the marker and make sure we hit top of the hour. You know, like all of those moving trains in my brain were just, they made perfect sense. And so I just, you know, I started to do it. I, so I was there for four years. But one of the things you learn really quickly about media is you don't really get to say how you get to progress in media when it comes to that. It's really not about you. It's about who's in the chair. It's about what they want in the chair. So I could be talented all day, but if they don't want a 40-year-old Black mom of three representing their image, then I'm never going to get a chance to sit in the seat. If they want a 22-year-old, you know, white girl fresh out of college, that's who they're going to put in the seat. If they want, you know, a middle-aged, you know, a white guy, who has radio chops or whatever, that's who they're going to put in the seat. It's never about you. It's a, literally about what vision they have in their head. Sometimes you fit the vision and sometimes you don't. So after four years, I knew it was probably going to be time for me to, you know, to skip on off into the sunset. Um, but at the same time that I was making that decision, the station itself was going through what I would consider a format change. They weren't changing what they were talking about, but they were absolutely changing who the target audience was. They didn't want their current demographic, which was women my age, like the 40 to 60 plus women. What they wanted were like the 18 to 24. And they were, you know, we saw we saw graphics change and become like hot pink and black and white. We saw the content change. It was like, stop talking about movie stars and talk more about Justin Bieber. It was, at the time, it was when Nielsen was, was transitioning to the real digital output of ratings. So it wasn't just the fill out the log every two weeks anymore. So it was very much, hey, we can see exactly when somebody tunes out of your show. So you have to talk about the same topic 
at the top of the hour, the quarter after, the halfway, the quarter two. And again, you got to talk about the same thing over and over again because it's not the same people listening the whole time. It's always they're they're going in and out. And I understood it. I understood how to, you know, maneuver. But I was also getting really upset that it felt like people in my age group were just being dismissed. And I was feeling it from both sides. I was being dismissed as an employee because I wasn't young enough or cool enough or you know, zany enough. That was and zany in media is code for acting dumb on the air, which I could not do. I don't have the capacity to do it. Um, and then I was also seeing it from the other side, which was as a listener, you're not talking about stuff that's relevant to me. You're not talking to me about things I care about. You're being super repetitive when I'm more of a deep listener. And it it wasn't adding up. So I had been sort of soapboxing to people like, you know what, this isn't this isn't okay. Women, grown women deserve to be treated a certain way. Grown women deserve to to be seen. We're not irrelevant. We're not meant to be pushed off to the side. We're the ones you should be listening to the most right now. We've got disposable income. We control 80% of our household spending. We have enough life experience not to be insecure about the things that we used to be insecure about. And we know that this is the top. We we know from here we're going to get older and lose more physical acuity. So right now is the sweet spot, right? I My faculties work, my brain works, and I actually don't give a shit about what y'all think of me. This is the sweet spot. Mm. Um, and the more people I told that to, the more people were like, yeah, that sounds great. Are you going to do something like that? And I just kept going, no, no, somebody else is probably doing it. Somebody's going to do it. And I happened to make that soapbox speech one night um, in front of Eric while we were doing our show. And he said, I think that's a fantastic idea. If you're serious, I'd happily invest in something like that. Mm -hmm. And I really truly went home and tried to disprove it. I tried to prove to him that it didn't need to exist. So I went home and I Googled Women's Podcast Network. And this was now six years ago, um, you know, because my company, it took two years to get everything together. So six years ago, I Googled that. Nothing came up. It was almost virtually a blank page. Hmm. And I was like, this is weird. So then I thought, well, if I was going to do something, what would I name it? I was like, I like to, I boss everybody around. I'd call a matriarch and, you know, I'd be in charge. So I typed in matriarch and there was a restaurant in, um, in DC that was closed and a, um, like a PR firm in like South Africa or something. And I was like, well, I wouldn't just call it matriarch. What would I call it? So kind of messed around the titles and matriarch digital media. And it came up blank. Nothing was, there was nothing. The domains were available. The social handles were available. No, it didn't exist. And I was like, this is a sign. So I called him the next day and I said, if you're serious, let's sit down and have a conversation. And it took us about eight months to get a deal together, you know, in terms of, you know, negotiating it, getting contracts, doing the percentages, getting it all worked out with lawyers, getting the money. Um, but then we, you know, we we started something. And to And I'll say this, to Eric's credit, he has always been, since day one, a silent partner. He gave me an amount of money that I asked for, um, has always been supportive in terms of if I need an introduction or if there's somebody he thinks can help me, he, he'll help bring them on board to help me, um, but has trusted my vision from day one, has never asked to have more say in the business. Anytime I go to him and say, hey, I just want to make sure you're in the loop, he just goes, I, you know, I trust you. I'm just glad you're, ha I'm just happy that you want me to be a part of something like this. So he's, he's been, um, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better, you know, introductory partner in this thing that we're building. So your work with um, uh, one oh seven one was that mm -hmm. one? Uh, my talk was that called? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. Terrestrial radio, right? 
Yes, yes. It's a terrestrial radio station. At the time, it was the only pop culture talk radio station in the country and conceivably in the world. No one had ever done that concept before. How is that? How is terrestrial radio different from podcasting for you um, in terms of how you create content, um, how you're able to talk and the things you're able to do and say that are different? Um, I will say this. The hardest thing about terrestrial radio is knowing how to navigate the way that it's there's a way you have to present yourself to be able to have it perceived the way it needs to come across for terrestrial radio. Someone taught me early on and with terrestrial radio, it's not about you. It's about your opinion. So they don't really want your personality, your personality. They don't want to know about your life. They don't want to know about what makes you tick. They want to know what you think about the Kardashians or what you think about Justin Bieber, or what you think about at the time, Paris Hilton. Um, and even that, it's not supposed to be too much of you. It's just supposed to be just enough to nudge the conversation in a certain way, right? So, um, and plus you're really boxed in on that time. If you're lucky enough to have a one hour show, over the course of a one hour show, you're going to talk for about, you know, eight to eight and a half minutes of that, you know, of every quarter block. So for every 15 minutes, you'll, you'll talk for, well, no, I'll correct that. Eight to 12 minutes of that block, you'll talk. Um, and then you got to make sure you the ads run on time. You got to make sure um, if you've got you know if you've got music clips or radio you know or TV clips that those run and you know fit within the course of a conversation. You have to manage callers and live callers are you know they're a crapshoot. Um, you have to give them a job. You can't just if, if you let a caller get in and say hey welcome to the show. They think it's my big break and then they just take over right. Plus you have to manage you know everything from a guest to a caller to, you know, how they're, you can't manage how they do things because terrestrial radio runs live. It does, you know, there's a delay, but it's only a few seconds of delay or a couple minutes. I would say we worked there. Um, I worked there at the, in the Janet Jackson era. So we went from having a seven second delay to a minute and a half delay where we would, you know, we could put it out and then actually like step out of the room and hear it somewhere else. And we always had to watch the dump button. So in radio, a dump button is if someone says something completely inappropriate, like one of the seven naughty words or bad words you can't say on the air, you hit that button and it dumps the last seven minutes worth of material. Um, you know, it just cuts it. But when you do that, you can't immediately press it again. So you have to essentially really navigate those next like 10 minutes to make sure it doesn't happen again, or whether that means you take an ad early or something, you just, there's a lot of variables you have to control for. In podcasting, you have much more control over your situation. Everything from the edit to, you know, doing it live to tape, to being able to share your personality, being able to, you know, to dictate what types of conversations that you have. There are conversations I wanted to have on the station, on the air that I could never have. There were things I wanted to be able to say or express that I could not, um, we had to be you know, always cognizant of sponsors and upper brass and the listeners and you know, any, any one of like a million different concerns. Like we used to get notes about don't say, don't say, like we made a Taco Bell joke once and they said, don't make jokes about Taco Bell because they could be a sponsor one day. And we'd be like, are they going to be? And they're like, no, not right now, but one day they could be. So then you had, so you had to always be really thoughtful about that kind of a thing. Um, almost to the point where you just, you kind of had to box yourself in. Um, and podcasting, I don't have to do that. I, you know, like well, where, where in terrestrial radio could I do a show with 
um, a friend of mine about the trials and tribulations of being a grown woman and growing old. Where on terrestrial radio will we be able to have a regular conversation of where successful women come and tell us how they failed and failed hard on, you know, something that was important to them? You know, like, where on earth would I be able to have a conversation on terrestrial radio where Eric and I could have a, an in-depth conversation about, you know, perimenopause, where he's talking about it from the actual clinical perspective, and I'm talking about it as the 46-year-old woman having hot flashes sitting next to him, right? These are not things that you would normally have conversations about, and we're able in the podcasting space to create, you know, real conversations about things that matter to our, you know, our friends, our families, our, you know, you know, our contingent, whatever it is, our community, um, and have, you know, not just a safe space to do it, but a space that's welcome to do it. You know, when you're, when you're talking about like, kind of being able to select how you want to talk about things and talking about things that, you know, that you can't talk about on the radio for whatever with, with sponsors and ads and all of that stuff. Um, basically like just being a creative person and being allowed to create what you want to create. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it makes me think about a lot of the conversations that are happening now about IP and ownership. And um, talk to me a little bit about how important, I mean, you are the CEO of a media company. So I guess in that case, like you're sort of the boss and maybe you make that decision or whatever, but talk to me about how much, and even in your case, like when you started Matriarch, like, how much ownership matters um, over your own property and like the show that you create? Um, I'm. I, it's funny that you brought up IP. I thought you did that on purpose because I've been such a proselytizer for IP for the last couple of years. Um, IP is the most important thing you can have as a creative and your ability to hold on to it is singularly the most important thing you'll be able to do as a creative. Um, it, it'll even sometimes trump the content that you make because the ownership of the content is going to be the most important thing you have access to. And we're seeing it again and again. We're looking at, if you look at, um, you know, like another round, um, you know, Buzz, BuzzFeed's podcast that they put out that they essentially, you know, when they shuttered, when they shuttered the division, all these people had made something that was ref completely reflective of themselves and their experiences. They had audience, they had support, you know, they, they had popularity. And when they killed it, they, the hosts and creators of those shows had nowhere to go. They had no ability to take their property and necessarily shop it someplace else unless a deal was made with BuzzFeed to move that property, right? And we're still seeing it. We're seeing some of those creators who still haven't received their shows back, who should have received their shows back. Um, we just, I don't know if you've been following the story um, about The Nod, um, Gimlet's podcast um, that Brittany Luce uh, and her co-host um, have been working on for a couple of years. Uh, they are now making a show for Quibi, that app, you know, where you can watch the stuff on your phone based on The Nod. They don't have any ownership in it. They don't have any say in it. They weren't even involved directly in making the deal. The deal was made and then they were told, hey, if you'd like to host this show, you can. They still have not received any ownership of the show, a show that they created in full. It is all of their intellectual property. It is all of their creative energy that created it from the ground up and framed out what is the show, how people recognize the show. And they don't own one piece of it. And that's not, to me, that's criminal. 
we're making these things. We should have a say in them. We should be able to have ownership. Um, as an owner of a media company, one of the very first things I made a decision to do, even though I knew it would be more difficult for us, is that if you brought a property to us and it was already your property, you own it. We don't. We basically have a shared revenue agreement while you work with the network and the revenue split is in your favor because you created this thing first. I might help make it better, but you created it. And if at any point you decide you want to leave, you can take your property, including the episodes we made together and you can take them with you. And we've had one show uh, since we started the network that came and left. She brought all of her previous episodes to us. We made a season together and she was able to take her episodes and the previous episodes and go with them because it's her property. What, what good does it do me to keep something that belongs to you that's your blood, sweat and tears as your passion project? What good does that do me? It doesn't do me any good. You know, we're honoring what you've created, but we're also trying to honor a process, which is hopefully maybe one day you'll come back and want to do something with us. Or even if you don't, you should be able to feel as good when you leave as when you come in the door with us. How do you, um, what is like, how do you monetize a podcast when you're starting your own company? Like I'm starting my own company, for example, this pod, this episode is going to be under Malikibu Productions, LLC, right? So Yay, I'm clapping for that. Yes. Got a couple episodes and, and other than going on anchor and, and making a, a, you know, an anchor ad and getting 12 cents. Yeah, per, yeah. well, I mean, that's, but that's, I, I try to tell people first to remember that the most important thing in making money on a podcast is make the best thing you can make first. Because if you make something this crappy, just because you want to try to rush it to get money, you're not going to make any money because nobody's going to care. Make something you care about, make something you're proud of sharing, make something that you'd be proud of, whether it made a dime or not. And then you'll have somewhere to start. And then you have to think about especially when you're an independent. And I actually feel like I have categories for how I refer to podcasting. There's absolutely the corporate, the, you know, the traditional media who have now dipped into the podcasting space. There is your, you know, that's sort of top tier right now. Just underneath it is what I would call the notable tier, the, the tier of notoriety where it's celebrities and people who have the money to go get the equipment and per- make stuff on their own or making things, um, you know, or they're partnering with, you know, companies like Acast or Art19 to make things. Um, then there are folks like us, the independents, you know, we, we have the ability to monetize, but not maybe in the same way that these folks above us monetize. And then there's the hobbyist. You're getting into it. You're making something and you're not really worried about the money or money can't even be a factor for you yet because you're just getting started. Um, So for the independents like us, I always try to level set and say, hey, remember that the podcast might be the, you know, sort of the gateway drug. It might be the funnel to bring people into your company. And then you're going to have to find other ways to monetize off of, not directly off the content, although that should be a goal, um, but you have to find other ways to be creative and utilizing the content and the message and what you're teaching people. So say you're somebody like us, we have made a volume of shows so that we could have a catalog to refer to. Now we're in a position where we can kind of sell ads on back catalog because we have hundreds of hours of material to draw from. Um, But we also had this production house because when I started the company, I was at least smart enough to go recruit women smarter than me to come do the work. So we have, you know, really talented and effective editors, sound mixers, project managers, producers who work with us. And so we went to them at the very beginning and said, hey, would you feel comfortable if we started a production house? You know, would you feel comfortable if we were able to line you up with, say, you know, work? for hire. It might be consultation. It might be, you know, like two or three hours. It might be a full 
season of a project, but would you feel comfortable with that? If you want to opt in, you opt in. If not, you opt out. Everyone opted in. So we were able to start a production house where we offer two things, a la carte services, where you can get individual help with individual things, or we actually have a comprehensive service where you have an idea in your head and you bring it to us and we help you make it from the idea in your head to a completed season of a podcast. And those have different price points and they allow for the business to draw in funds. It allows us to put more money into our editor's pockets and in our mixers, you know, everybody that's doing the work. Um, but it also created an immediate revenue stream. And that thing made money for us before we could get sponsorships on shows. Um, I also try to remind people that if you're making a podcast and it say it teaches somebody something, there are natural spinouts from a podcast that you can use to monetize. If you're if you've got a cooking podcast, then maybe a cookbook is a natural progression. Um, you know, or before COVID, we were talking about live events and getting connected to people. You know, with live events. But now that we're in the virtual space, then you can still do this as you know you can possibly do this as a virtual class or you know virtual event or virtual cooking class or you know some ability to teach something. If your thing is like about budgeting or whatever, then maybe Maybe you designing something in Google Docs that is a comprehensive, you know, like digital ledger that people can use that you've figured out how to set up so that it makes sense to people. And you sell that. You sell that for whatever, you know, price that you can. Um, I'm a big fan of, even though we don't employ it ourselves, I'm a big fan of the tip jar, of the direct donation, like putting a direct donation on your site, um, because you should never limit people's ability to be generous with you. Somebody might just really like what you're doing and all they got is $2. And if they want to give you that $2, that's two more dollars than you had the day before. Now you're, you know, now you're moving forward, right? So I, I always say there are a lot of creative ways to utilize the skill sets that you're putting in a podcast and making money. You just have to, you have to be imaginative and you can't just get yourself fixated on, I need a sponsor or I need ads because those aren't necessarily easy to do when you're first out the gate. Hmm. What do you think um, about sort of, uh, I heard the phrase, I think it was Joe Budden was talking about uh, creatives versus like plug and play. Um, I actually think that sometimes we put too much emphasis on the label of how that works because sometimes plug and play people are really talented people. They might be journeymen. They might be people with a lot of experience. They might be people who just, they're jamming all of this. They don't want to do all the creative. They just want to be the one who cuts that tape flawlessly for you so that it's, you know, you got, when you say, I need this tape cut at the 337 mark and there's this the guy did something and then he took a breath and I don't know how to get it out. And this person's like, oh, bet, done right? Sometimes your plug and play folks are really talented folks and you just happen to want what they want and it's not the same as what you want. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you have to be able to know the difference. And that's the important part. If you've got a plug and play, you know, folks on your team and you're trying to build a long-term team, they might not be the right fit because you want somebody that cares as much about this thing as you care about it. But that also changes the dynamic of how you build the team. Because if you're building people who are passionate about your project, you got to make sure that they get paid or they get ownership or they've got, you know, percentages on this thing, right? Sometimes what you can afford is plug and play. Sometimes all you can afford is, you know, the the person that can come and do a tape sync or, um, you know, or the, like I said, uh, I use editing as an example all the time because people have a lot of trouble with the editing part of this process. To be able to say, I can make this, but I don't know how to edit it, but I took notes. Can I pay you to edit it and follow my notes? Bet, right? Now you're getting what you need um, in the best way that you're able to get it. Um, 
I just think it's, I think it, I think we wind up doing ourselves a disservice, especially as independents, when we start getting too high-minded about like who's a part of the process or who holds what importance or who takes it more seriously in a process. 90, 99.9% of us podcasters are not making podcasts as their job, right? Most of us are doing this in addition to having a day job, in addition to having a family or other people we're responsible for, or going to school, you know, or trying to manage, you know, uh, chronic health conditions. The podcasting tends to be something that you're adding on to the rest of your life. So anything that helps you do that without making your life more complicated or more difficult, um, I, you know, I'm all here for it. And as long as people are clear and they communicate, it shouldn't be a problem. I mean, that's what, that's, let's be honest. That's what a lot of, that's what most radio talent does. That's what we, that's what we get asked to do. I mean, like when I, you know, when I hosted a radio show, I was not asked or tasked with producing the show. I was told to show up and make sure I'm ready to talk about what we want to talk about. Um, And a lot of, you know, uh, that's one of those, how the sausage gets made. A lot of radio um, stations, the host comes in and they're handed a script. And the script has the highlighted things that they're supposed to talk about. And they're only talking about what the producers gave them. There's no, hey, I wanted to talk about this today. It's nope, here's your here's your talking points for today. And that's just what you do. So, I mean, I ideally in a podcast setting, because the work can be so personal, it would be nice if you could have some, you know, people involved that are into it, that are as deep, you know, that care about it. But when you're working at the level that, you know, like, I feel like that's like apples and oranges when you're up at the level where Joe is making stuff at Spotify and you're, you know, and stuff like that, you're, you kind of, you, you kind of know you're moving back into a traditional, you know, terrestrial model. It's not just a regular podcast. You walk in the door with a set of concerns that are much different than, you know, me and you figuring it out on our off hours and our off time. You come in with sponsor responsibilities. You you come in with audience share responsibilities. He knew when he launched that thing under Spotify that it had to hit a certain number of zeros, you know, week one. It had to have growth you know, trajectory growth. It had it had to bring in so many, so much in sales. You know that kind of a thing. So then, yeah, I mean, it it doesn't it doesn't feel as good to have to put plug and play people into that. But if those people will guarantee you your money, that's what you're going to do. To be fair, you're good at doing the plug and play thing, and you know how to just jump in and do something like we all do. I think, especially yeah. our, you got to know how to do something. You know. Yes, you do. You do. You know how to uh, use a Zamboni? I'll say, to, I mean, to you, if you're the person in charge, I'm going to say, yes, I do. To everyone else, I'll say, no, but I'll watch a YouTube video and I'll figure it out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, if it if it was up to you, you'd find a way to make yourself eat outside of those, you know, the ability to get that done. Yeah. But how much do you think that, that hosts, like, let's say a, a lot of these companies or like, I don't know how it works with Matriarch, but... Um, you talked about like sharing ownership. Uh, what does sharing revenue look like with like? Um, well, I can say this because most of that's like, uh, you know, protected information. Um, but what I can say is we we make sure that if a host comes, because most of the time the person hosting the show is the person who's created the show and it's centered on them or their experience. Um, what we do is we make sure that the revenue split 
we, we have a revenue split based on the amount of money left over after production costs are taken out. And we know exactly how much it costs us to do a production. We keep that, we keep the margins on production costs super minimal um, so that anytime money is coming in and we subtract off that percentage, we know what's left. And then that what's left is split in an even the, in a take that favors the host um, if they're the creator. Now, if it's the other way and it's a show we created and we recruited somebody in, we have that flip so that it favors us, but they get a, they get a generous, like this is not, we're not talking like a 10 to 90. We're not, it's not like that at all. Um, because, because most of these people are doing work, podcast work, and they're not getting paid up front for the work. I mean, the first three years we ran our company, um, the only people getting paid were the editors because we actually, they were doing physical, tangible work that we could put a monetary amount on. This is how much it costs to do this. And this is how much it costs in the industry and in our market to pay for this service. So we were able to, you know, we were making sure that we had money that could pay them. I wasn't even drawing salary. I wasn't drawing any kind of money. I still don't. I still pump the majority of the money back into the business. Um, I've been duly chastised over 2020 that that's no longer allowed to happen. So we actually are on a trajectory path uh, for 2021 for me to actually draw salary from the business and stop just pumping money in to the, like putting anything that should come to me back in because we're actually at a point now where we can be solvent enough for me to do that. What does like, what does marketing look like and like like how do you because i think about like ads basically and how ads work and how these larger companies like you know one thing you mentioned with like uh, the joe budden thing with like the benchmarks of you have to meet you have to meet this amount of listens or this amount of downloads before you get something and i always feel like it's like a moving target basically but when you're when you're working on your own you can actually determine some of those things and like you you see you see numbers more easily so like how what's your approach to like marketing and um getting your brand out there and selling your brand to someone? um i will say this i am a terrible marketer it's probably the weakest part of my collective game right. you know in terms of the business um but the thing I have learned, and the only, to be honest, the reason I'm a terrible marketer is twofold. One, we just didn't have the resources. When we had money, we wanted to put it into making the best shows we can make. So we just kept pouring it back into the business. We never siphoned off and said, oh, let's pay for some ads. Or let's pay for some. We just kept putting it back into the business and really relying heavily, probably too heavily on word of mouth. Now, mind you, we were able to build up to a certain point you know, just on word of mouth. We've been super fortunate and we've had a really good and dedicated community of folks who have supported us. Um, but the only other part of the business that I did not, in terms of marketing, that I didn't invest in quickly enough is this entire endeavor came because I had a vision for something. And when I was in front of people and I explained that vision, they understood it and they wanted to support it and they would, and they wanted to help us. And I wasn't doing a good enough job of putting myself out there to do that. I was always trying to push the host and push the, you know, the shows we made. And I was always trying to hide in the back because as a producer, I like to be in the back. Um, but I received a really wonderful piece of advice from someone who said, Hey, you have to like, you realize that you are as much matriarch as matriarch as you. So if you're going to sell this to people, you need to get in front of them. You need to go tell the story. You need to go tell people what you tell us when we're talking about this. The, the thing that, that fires us up, that makes us want to help you, you need to tell more people that story. 
And at the end of 2019, I had really just surrendered to the idea that if you want to talk to me about the business, I'll talk to you. And so I started doing interviews, which I had never done, really done before. Um, I had started getting some press, some real, you know, press coverage. And it was actually really starting to snowball. And then the pandemic hit. So then we had to, you know, kind of put the brakes, you know, on some of that. Um, but it was a valuable lesson in that the thing that is one of the things that's kept the business buoyed in the pandemic has been, I put myself in enough places publicly that my name now comes up when people are talking about podcasting, when they say, oh, we need to talk to somebody about podcasting. Oh, that Twyla, she does that. Um, I also, um, and this, as a marketing tool, this actually just wound up accidentally helping us because I was so dedicated to wanting more women in the industry that we started this women in podcasting just started as a way for us to talk to women where we live. We were, you know, uh, in the building where we both worked. I would open the building up on Sunday once a month, have people come in. I'd teach them a little something and then I would open the floor to questions. And if I knew it, great. And if somebody else in the room knew it, hey, now we're all getting better at this podcasting thing. Um, the pandemic hit and we took it online decided to make it virtual because I didn't want the momentum to stop. And I knew that you might not have a lot of control of anything else, but you you could still make podcasts from home. Everybody's got access to the Zoom thing and we could do some stuff. Um, and the first time we offered it online, our, I would say on our best day, on our best occasion, we might have gotten like 85, 90 people to show up to a woman in podcasting. The first time we did it online, we got 2,500 women. Um, and it just keeps growing. So it was like, yeah, this is this resonates. So now when people so now people understand two things. They know that I make podcasts and they know that they can trust the information I give them about making podcasts. And that has turned into a really powerful marketing tool in and of itself. And that if you trust me and you trust the information that comes from me, then you trust, you know, you trust the the brand a little bit more. You're willing to maybe take a chance on some of the shows or take a chance on something that I'm making because you now know that I'm, you know, I'm not telling you something I'm not doing, or I'm not, I'm not BSing you. Like it's right there. If I say, if I'm talking to you about how good or bad I am at marketing, you can see it. If I'm talking to you about how to make, how to be a better host, you can see it. Right. Um, and if you trust it, then you'll just, you know, hopefully you keep coming back. Now, all that said, I am actually for the first time really like putting together a social media plan and a, and a real like, how to get ourselves in places we've never been before plan, um, which is a completely new territory for me. Um, but, you know, it is a part of, you know, uh, at the end of the day, I want a business that can survive whether I'm in it or not. And that means it deserves more structure and more, um, you know, it, it deserves it deserves more than just me trying my best. It deserves bringing people in. It deserves a team. It deserves a plan that we can execute. You know, so that if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, heaven forbid, the business will go on, not because it's all stuck up in my head. It's actually out in the world in a way that we can execute on it. So. Do you have plans to do um, like other forms of like any visuals or anything like that? Um, TV shows, um, things like books, or have you guys already been working on those? Like, what does that look like for Matriarch? Um, for Matriarch, we have not been thinking that way. Um, I'll be perfectly honest. I think the closest we'll get to it is with what happens with the learning platforms, because there'll be different types of modules used to cover all kinds of learners. There'll be video, there'll be audio, there'll be, you know, written and transcription, you know, things like that. Um, we're still, I, I still want to create a really safe space for women. And as soon as you introduce video, 
you're taking away some of that safe space. Like when the women show up and they want to talk to us and they're being really vulnerable, they shouldn't have to worry about what their makeup looks like or what their hair looks like or, you know, if the lighting is good. They should just be able to show up and be themselves. Like it's it's intimate. It's, you know, it's vulnerable. Um, and so I I genuinely don't have a plan. I'm not going to say never. I'm not, uh, it'll, it'll be a never say never thing because I'm sure eventually we'll get to that point where we want to incorporate more of that, but not until we've built the most, you know, the most safe space we can possibly create for women to come and share themselves and their stories and for us to be able to create a community where you know it's safe to do that here. Um, we do have plans to, I, I personally have plans to do some more immersive work with some different types of mediums. I'm actually in the process of putting together a crowdfund for a new media company. Um, I can't talk about it in full yet because the trademark ain't finished, um, but the work of matriarch is very much a mission. You know, I, I have a mission. We are changing the way the world talks to and talks about women and girls. That is the mission. It'll never change. Um, because of that, the focus of the work is women-centered, women-focused. We work primarily with women. You know, it is, it very much has a, you know, a life of its own in that it's going a certain way. But I'm also a creative and I'm also a person who has other stories I want to tell, other things I want to experiment with, the ability to, to tell other stories outside of that scope and that range. Um, and so we needed a space to do that. Um, and I think I found a way for us to do it. Um, and I'm now building out what will be, you know, a media company that can house that. What does all of your for like do you break format do you have a specific format that you look for when you're creating podcasts um do you care about format are you are you a what do you call it, an elitist <laughs> um no we weren't i wouldn't say we we're an elitist um i know when we started uh it was very much um baked in i honestly i this is this is where my research brain kicked in um, I started to learn about podcasting. I started to try to figure out how we could get in on the ground floor and how we could be most effective with the least amount of resources. Then I knew the easiest way was to mimic the talk radio form, format, a chat cast, two people talking about something because you can control the variables, right? Um, and it doesn't require as much research and it doesn't require, you know, all the editing and moving pieces. So we essentially brought in our first crew of women and we said, we're going to make sure it's like we do on radio, live to tape. We don't stop for the edit unless something goes disastrously wrong. Um, but we're going to, and we're going to plan out, like, here's the conversation we're going to have. So you know where you're going, you know directionality. But we're going to stop, start the tape at the top, and we're going to stop the tape at the end. And unless we needed to make an edit, we were able to put the credits on the top and the bottom. Um, you know, put the music at the top and the bottom, and we could just go, right? The shows could get made, and they could just go. And mind you... This was now, like I said, this is now six years, five years ago, because we did production for an entire year before we released anything. And this was before people made things on seasons, right? This was when you were, when you had to crank that mess out every week and you're supposed to have podcasts every week. So we made 40 episodes before we released anything. Hmm. So that for almost an entire year, you were getting fresh content from us, right? It was evergreen, but it was fresh every single week. You got something new, right? Which meant you had to put a lot of energy into that. Um, over time, we now have, we've now built up enough trust with our audience that we can start to do other things and experiment with other things. So we have some, some of our podcasters just monologue. It's just them talking into the mic and seemingly having a conversation with the audience. It's like, you know, hey, I'm talking to you, right? Um, we actually had commissioned two years ago 
um, our first art, audio drama, as it were. We just didn't have the money to make it, but we have a script. We have a script that was written two years ago by um, a romance author that we really love. And it's a great story. It's just, it's going to take budget to get that sucker off the ground because there's voices and sound effects and music and, you know, all the things. So we've, we've always had a wider vision than we probably had pockets to fund, you know, but that hasn't ever stopped us from like trying to figure out how to do better. Um, and some of the stuff we have coming up right now are really research-based. Um, we're doing a podcast um, with a local artist about Black women, um, Black women's contribution to the art world. Um, and so she's, you know, she's pretty, it's going to basically be like a historical based podcast where she, you know, walks us, where she introduces us to um, some notable and not as notable, you know, Black women artists and tells us about, you know, how they came up and how the time period they were in impacted the work they were able to do or their ability to be seen and, you know, um, recognized. Um, we're also working on um, a pet project of mine that I deeply love, um, where I, I've, I've had an obsession with boy bands since I was 15. It hasn't gone anywhere. I love them. So we're actually making a show called Boy Band Babylon, where we talk about, you know, history of boy bands, where we hopefully will use this as an excuse for me to meet all the people that I loved and bought tickets for when I was a kid. Um, but we actually want to have a deeper conversation, not just about boy bands, but about the structure of the structure of boy bands and what role they play in the ability for teenage girls to have a safe space to test out you know, desire, longing, sexuality, all of those things. These, there were archetypes built in that gave us safe space to do that, right? Um, and so, it, you know, there's hopefully these things will play on two levels where it's just like, oh, I really love boy bands. But at the same time, let's have a discussion about what they actually did for us. Like what that allowed for us to explore when we live in households where parents don't talk to you about sexuality and your body and emotions that are connected to those things. Um, let's talk, let's have a deeper conversation about how, things that young girls tend to love are things that they're made to be shamed for, right? Um, and have, let's, have a, let's have a full circle conversation while still giving me the ability to meet all the boy banders that I like loved as a kid. So when you say boy bands, you, the, clarify for me, are you talking about like new kids on the block? Or? Yes. Uh, okay. We're sitting in my closet and above my shoulder are the earrings I wore to my first concert when I was 15. I'm 46. I've seen them four times in concert. I see them almost every time they come to town now because I'm grown and it's my money and I can do what I want. But that makes a huge, it makes a huge impact when you have, as a young person, to have a safe space to explore like why you might feel the way, like who's your type? And I mean, we, you know, your parents don't talk to you about stuff like that. We just, we don't have the language. We don't, we still don't do a good job of talking to our kids about, you know, what is attraction and physical attraction and desire and sexuality in a safe space and in a way that is, you know, that is safe for them to be able to understand and ask questions. So for a lot of us, particularly in that late 80s, early 90s time period, it was all expressed through archetypes. A boy band would usually have five members. Everybody had their favorite. Their favorite usually fit an archetype of the type of men that we talk about when we, when we talk about grown women and what they're attracted to. Um, imagine having a safe space to, to explore why you like the bad boy because you like the bad boy in the group, right? Or imagine the space where you can, you know, explore why you like, you know, the guy that, why you like the guy that's always in the front or why you like the guy that's always in the back, right? Like there's, everybody had like a place to get connected to it. And boy bands are a powerful 
they're a powerful machine in terms of like, you know, a fiduciary machine, but they're also a powerful tool that you see play out again and again and again over time. I mean, we see, we see at least one successful boy band per decade, right? Every single decade. I mean, since the since the sixties. What is it now? Um, I would say the last really popular one was One Direction, and they've been on hiatus for about five years. And there's, I would say right now it's the K-pop groups because they basically took the Motown model, applied it to teenage Korean boys, put government funding behind it, and now it's like gigantic, right? So you know, any any self-respecting teenage girl knows who BTS is right now. Even my mom knows who BTS is, which is like, wow. What what are are um are black uh boy bands considered boy bands? Because every time I hear about boy bands, it's like in sync and Backstreet Boys, but I don't hear about New Edition and that. Yes, see, I think New Edition is, and I think they're an original archetype because everybody knows New Kids in the Block was based on New Edition. Um, I think there's a little bit of that weird '90s like disconnect. Like a group like Boys to Men wouldn't want to be referred to as a boy band because they were higher quality singers. Yes, they're actual crooners, yes. Right, they're exactly. So I think they would rather move themselves into another category. But we had, I mean, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we had everything from ABC, which was like a little kid boy band that was supposed to mature and never did. Um, we had B2K, Immature, you know, so there's, you know, um, we had Soul For Real, you know, like some of them were one-hit wonders, but they were absolutely boy bands under that sort of canon of, the the recipe that you put together to try to make something successful mm. yeah don't get me started i'll talk about boy bands all day marcel all day i like yo i like the music even the backstreet boys got a couple hits that you know they got some they made they made the what what i refer to as the quintessential boy band song they have the most quit playing games like no i want it that way I want it that way is a perfect, it's not just a perfect pop song. It is the perfect representative boy band song. Mm-hmm. But again, I, I have too much psychology around this. You can't get me started. I'll never stop talking about it. Okay. <laughs> um, what did I, okay. Wow. You threw me off of the boy. Band. Yeah. Sorry. I do that. <laughs> What's one thing that you would like say to a young woman who's in high school, she's 15, 16, she's interested in podcasting or being a creative in general, like creating some kind of medium or showing her art through some kind of medium. Like uh, what's one piece of advice or one thing that like you wish that you had known? I know you didn't, you said specifically that you yeah. dream your whole life and all that, but um, even, even not a 16 year old girl, even like, like my mom or something like that, who's in her, how old is my mom now? In her six. <laughs> early 60s right uh-huh so, um like how, how is she in fact even more importantly how is my mom supposed to start something compared to somebody who's younger like what does that process process look like look like of unlearning all of that stuff that you know she can't start anything because if you ask my mom she's a singer she grew up singing she's like an amazing singer but she doesn't want to sing anymore so it's like how do you Aww. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get her, you gotta like voice the, you gotta do the grandkid thing and get her to, get her to sing. That'll get her to sing again. She'll sing, she'll sing for that grandbaby. My dad's the same. He, he didn't sing for a long long time and he loves singing to my kids. So that's, that's my tip for the day. There's my mom tip for you for the day. Um, What I would tell your mom and what I would tell the teenager is the same thing. Uh, If you have something that you're 
passionate about, that you're interested in, that you just find endlessly entertaining for you. You don't make this, you don't try to make things for the audience. You don't try to say, oh, I'm going to make this and the audience is going to love it. What you do is you talk about or you make something that you love so that you don't get tired of talking about it and tired of uh, following it. And if you find something like that, that you love, go make stuff. You don't ever have to put it out in public. It's, I don't say make stuff and then release it. Go make stuff. Go make, go make a recording and then give yourself the space to go, oh, my voice sounds crazy. Oh, why would I do that? Why did I do that? Then make it again and, you know, make it until you feel like, okay, it's not so bad. And then keep making it until you feel like, hey, this, this is actually starting to sound pretty good. And then make it until you're proud of it. And then make it until you're ready for other people to hear it. Make it until somebody's ready to share it. And that doesn't mean you do hours and hours of this. You can make a podcast five minutes long. You can sing a song and song takes three minutes, right? You make something until you're comfortable enough and proud enough of it that you want other people to hear it and you want to share it with other people. Then you know you're on to something. Then you know you're ready. And only you'll know when that happens. You, you get to, but the thing is, you get to make that decision. I don't get to make it. You don't get to make it. The person who has that idea, they get to make that decision. You can decide today is the day I'm going to start doing this thing. And convincing yourself that it has to be perfect is a trap. It's never going to be perfect. I've been podcasting now for four years. I quite literally just finished a podcast. It's going out through a national corporate entity. And I still think my voice sounds like Vanessa Huxtable from The Cosby Show. I will, you'll never convince me differently. And that's okay, because that's how I interpret my voice. But it, no longer, but it no longer stops me from making things. It doesn't, I don't hate the sound of my voice. Now I just know, it just sounds funny to me. It seems to work for other people, it sounds funny to me. But now I understand what I'm doing, and now I know I can go do it. At this point... There isn't anything that I haven't made before that I'm afraid to go at least try because I can try and follow my face and you'll never have to know it. Only I have to know it. So that's, that's the piece of advice I give all the time. Just go try, go make some stuff. It's for, make some stuff for you. Don't make it for anybody else. Make some stuff for you because you'll be surprised at um, how much you'll grow to love a process and you'll really be surprised at how quickly you go from, I'm not sure about this to, I think I want to let my friend hear it. I think I want to let my kid hear it. I think I want to share it. Sure. But what about like, uh, like if you want to start something, but you don't have a bunch of, you don't have the mic, you don't have the interface. You don't oh, you don't need any of that these days. Um, podcasting is still one, one, the wild west compared to all these other media companies. If you wanted to make a TV show tomorrow, you couldn't because you don't have a camera, you don't have lighting, you don't have a network to air it on. You might be able to go to, you know, like public television station and get some airtime if you sign up for it and pay $60 or whatever, but that's all you'd get access to. For podcasting, quite literally, if you have one of these three devices in your home, you can start podcasting tomorrow. Do you have a phone? Do you have a laptop? Do you have a tablet? Any of those three, you can start podcasting tomorrow. There are free platforms like Anchor that will actually allow you to record directly into the platform and get moving. Um, there are free services like open source services like Audacity that will allow you to do recordings, right? You can do a recording and like edit it yourself and then put it out there. If you're not comfortable with any of those other mechanisms, you can actually take your phone, go into the voice note, 
Um, and that like, if you're going to do this and you're talking to me, I'll probably tell you how to doctor it up, like how to plug your headphones in and all that other good stuff. But you can literally take voice notes on your phone, make a podcast, find a quiet space in your car or your house, hit that record button, talk about what you want to talk about and just put it out in the world. Right. You can you can literally put it out in the world and you can use all these free platform hostings like Anchor or you can put it up on SoundCloud or you can put it on your website if you already have a website, because a lot of us do. If you don't have a website, you can get one free from WordPress. There are. Podcasting is this truly democratized space right now. If I make a podcast and Oprah makes a podcast and we both put it out on Tuesday, it is not the same as if I made a TV show and Oprah made a TV show right? When Oprah makes a TV show, she got a whole network and she's Oprah, right? And I'm like over here, maybe, maybe on public television, or maybe I put my stuff on YouTube because that's the only place I could put it. But when we both release a podcast, we are on the same playing field. We both released a new podcast on Tuesday. Well, End but story. You know, Oprah, she, she'd be on the front page at uh, Apple Podcasts. <laughs> but here's the thing. She might be on the front page of Apple Podcasts. But the way that these things work nowadays, that's not the only game in town, right? It's just, it's just not. Like, if I can get approached by, like, an Overcast to get a network page for my show, and so now I got a network page and Oprah's show got a network page, Hey, again, we're we're back on the same playing field, right? It's not that different. It's, you know, and like I said, and because podcasting is still so new, the nuance of that kind of stuff is just starting to build up now. That's that's why I'm so invested in women in podcasting, because I don't want it to turn into the chasm that television and movies and, you know, and music are. I don't want it to become this thing where unless you got all this money, you can get in at the top and then nobody else can survive. We can all survive right now. We can all be a part of this. We can all get a piece of the pie right now in a way that we can't in other industries. And I want to preserve our ability to continue to do that. Do you think there needs to be like a union or like a an academy or something like that to determine things? Because I feel like that's what happens in other forms of media. There's like somebody who's making determinations as to what, you know, the the height, you know, with the Peabody Awards and the very, like iHeart just started their podcast awards. Yeah, but they just give it out to themselves. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? So how yeah. do we know that? You know what I mean? Like, what's the measurement? Or if I'm trying to start a podcast and I'm my 60-year-old mother who just sits in my house by myself, I don't have a whole bunch of friends. Like, how do I, who do I compare myself to? How do I know? I would say, I would say you don't compare yourself to anybody. That's, I think that's one of the things I love about podcasting. If I had gotten into podcasting and I had to compare myself to what was I was doing at the radio station, there was there would have been no comparison. It would have been, you know, it would have been like a zero to, you know, 500,000 unique listeners per day. There would have been no way for us to have an equal, I would have never been able to get on footing with them, right? But in in the podcasting sphere, it doesn't take that many people to be successful. It just doesn't. You can have, I know a woman that has a successful knitting podcast. She like, you know, knitting, crocheting. She, I think she maxes out at about 5,000 listeners, but she gets so many advertisements and sponsorships on her podcast because she's talking about a niche category and she's driving business to these companies that these companies are putting money in her pocket, right? Like that's, she's she's winning. She doesn't need 100,000 people. She doesn't need 10 million people. She has this little corner of the world where she loves this thing and she talks about it. And it somehow turned into from a hobby to something that makes her money. I'm making enough money you know, with this little entity that I built in the middle of the country, in the middle of Minnesota, to be able to sustain, you know, employees, 
right? Like I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not asking you, do you want fries with that? Heck, I, I built something up I built something up with my own two hands from the basement of my house that was effective enough and got enough people's attention that American public media hired me to make a product for them. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm completely self-taught. Right. I, I, like I said, strangely enough, the pandemic came and I wound up being the best possible person you could have hired to make this project because I already knew how to make podcasts from my basement and cars and backyards and everywhere else. They didn't know how to do that. They were used to, you know, $50,000 studios and, you know, and, and, you know, do a process and all of a sudden the process went out the window and it was like, what are we going to do? I was like, we're going to do what I do every day. And we made something. Right. So when you're talking about like the need to have a measurement versus an association, I actually do think we should have some sort of an association. Um, My concern about an association is the same with any other. If you create an association and it's dictated from top down and not bottom up, what you will automatically do is leave out the most vulnerable, right? You'll cut out, you'll cut everybody off at the bottom because you'll, you'll set something up and you'll set, you'll be super high-minded about, well, we have to pay dues and we have to do this and it has to represent this. And all this money will pour in from people who can afford it. And then the people that are at the bottom who could use the protections and could use the support that could be provided won't even have a, an ability to get in. And then we'll complain and then they'll offer five scholarships and then five brown people a year might be able to get in. And that's supposed to be enough to, you know, convey, you know, diversity as it were. That won't work. If you're going to create something like that, it has to be something that starts, that really thinks and operates from the bottom up. What would it, What is it going to require to have the most vulnerable people in our professional population be a part of this? And are we making sure that we're doing things that meet the standards of minimum care or minimum support or minimum information for all of them on the from the bottom up? That's the only way these systems can be built in the future. We've And we're already seeing it. We're already seeing within podcasting and these big companies what happens when you think top down. We're seeing you know, mass exodus of people of color. We are seeing people getting called out on social media in places like Twitter. You know, we're seeing programs getting called out and people, you know, people demanding resignations and, you know, and firings because they're not thinking about everybody. They're trying, they're, ascent, these, these big companies came in, bought podcast companies in the middle and started instituting the same old, you know, for lack of a better phrase, the same old white guy logic that built business in the past. That's not how we need to build business in the future. And podcast is, an actual, is actually an industry that can build a better future for itself. But we actually have to make sure we're representative in that voice. We can't just let these folks come in and put money in it and shut us out. Um, Twyla, is there anything that, that you know I didn't ask you about or we didn't talk about that you think is important in terms of like your mission or like? Um, I think the only thing I always try to make sure that I, I make clear to people is I think podcasting is so powerful because you can get in at any stage and do the work. You know, you don't have to go to school to become a podcaster. You don't have to go to broadcast school to become a podcaster. You don't have to have a college degree to be a podcaster. You don't, you don't have to have all these technical skills. When I started podcasting, I had enough money to buy some equipment. I had some friends I had recruited. And the very first day we recorded, I pushed all the wrong buttons and wasted two hours worth of recording. Cause I didn't, cause it didn't, 
capture anything. Um, and we just, we looked at each other and we laughed and we just said, okay, we're going to do it again next week. We're going to do, we'll do it again. Um, it's such a powerful medium and it's the ability for, particularly for, um, you know, for people of color and for women to get in and share their experience and share their stories. We are always talking about how our voices are not represented in mainstream media. Well, guess what? We actually now have a mechanism in which we can share our voices that isn't censored by mainstream media, that isn't determined or, you know, or, you know, deigned credible by other sources. I mean, when you look at the data, the when you look at the data of what determines what we see in our culture, it still starts at the very top by newsrooms. Newsrooms are 90s, almost 97% controlled by white men. So that means white men decide what goes in the news. The news in turn dictates what we see in culture, i.e., you know, your today shows, your morning shows, your talk shows. Um, those topics tend to trickle down into what we see funnel into entertainment, what we see producers trying to go after, stories they want to tell, and ultimately what winds up in front of our faces to entertain us, whether it's movies, TV, you know, music, all of those things, all of those things. Think about that entire industry being dictated by, at the top tier level, only white men, exclusively white men. So they get to decide what's important to Black folks, and when they get to decide what's important to women, and they get to decide what's important to everybody else, whether it's LGBTQIA representation or other ethnic and cultural backgrounds, they shouldn't be allowed to do that all this time. You know, we've, we, haven't, we haven't been able to find a way to unseat that, um, but we do have this mechanism now where we can go tell our stories. And not just, you know, when podcasting started, yeah, it was pirate radio. It was, you know, it was just you and your friends sitting at the table, you know, shooting the shit about something. But now we're making beautiful things, nuanced things, right? Now we're telling our stories and our history and our experience and we're sharing our, you know, calls to action and we're entertaining each other. We're uplifting each other. We're providing vital, you know, you know, vital conversations about healthcare and, you know, vital conversations about mental health and, all of these things that we just never had the, you know, we didn't have the space to do it because we didn't have permission to do it. Well, now we don't need permission. Hmm. And now if you know somebody like me, you know somebody like you, now we, now you have, you know, we have Al Gore's internet. <laughs> we can, there's a lot you can do, right? There's a lot you can do with very, very minimal tools. Um, and just, you know, and just let your imagination go to the furthest borders of where your imagination can go. Don't limit yourself. Don't limit yourself. Find a way to find a way to get out and start telling your stories. I promise you, if you start doing that, people will show up. The universe will move itself to help make you successful. It will put people in your path. It will put you in front of information you need or people you need or equipment you need. You will be able to get your stories out. I'm I'm absolute living proof of that. I, I had an idea. You know, I had a frustration that turned into an idea, you know, six years ago. And for the last four years, I've been executing on that idea every day. And now I can actually say, even though I have a day job and I run a company, I can actually say I spend all of my my working professional hours are spent podcasting. I don't think I would have ever been able to say that, you know, with a straight face, you know, uh, four years ago, I would have thought, that's a that's a crazy idea. Let me know how it works out. And now, I, you know, I happily eat crow. I live it. I live this experience every single day. Twyla, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not quite where you are with things. Um, and I know that you, you know, 
the the mission of matriarch is um about women and that's something that i definitely support but you know i'm a guy and i learn a lot from you so i feel like <laughs> well i always say you're it's not that men aren't welcome they're they're always welcome i just make sure you're everybody understands um i'm not you're welcome but i'm not focused on you and that's okay exactly well and we can learn you know and yeah absolutely absolutely it's like and and majority of what you teach is something that anyone can learn from. You know, it just happens to be that you're focused on teaching women that, but it's something that I think is important. Um, where can we find you? And of course, I'm going to link all this stuff in the uh, the show notes, as we call them, or whatever. Yeah. Where can we find um, Matriarch Digital Media? Obviously, we could Google that. Most of the people. <laughs> Most people can. Um, you can find us at the website. Go to matriarchdm.com. That is our website. Um, it'll lead you to Matriarch, our shows. It'll also take you to Women in Podcasting. We have a couple of really exciting things that are going to be coming up before the end of the year. Uh, you want to be following matriarchdm.com because we're actually going to be um, moving forward with some industry research. Um, it's time for us to get some tangible data about who's working in the industry, and we're spearheading that research, and we actually received a grant to do it. Um, so we're going to have some information coming out soon about how you can be represented in that count. Um, and I'm very excited about that. Um, you can always find me everywhere. I'm Twyla Dang everywhere. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram, on Facebook, you know, all the, all the things. Um, you can always find me or Matriarch. If you search Matriarch Digital Media, just about in all of those places, you will find us there as well. Um, come to Women in Podcasting. It's free. We do it every second Sunday of the month. Um, and you're welcome to, it's a Zoom. Um, we also do it on Facebook Live. So you can just come to Matriarch's page on Facebook and, you know, it'd be nice if you liked it, but you don't have to. You can just come and learn. We teach and then the floor is open. You can ask your questions. So um, I, I want as many women as possible to be uh, making podcasts. And we thought a long time ago about not leaving men out of the equation. So last year we staged our first conference. It was called Podcast Denord. Obviously, because of the pandemic, we're not staging it this year, um, but we're actually uh, shifting it to a... Um, a full service vertical learning platform. We're attempting to make it, you know, sort of an indie podcaster's go-to resource. Um, and that'll be available early 2021. 